Pacifica Radio. I'm Max Blumenthal. This week, we'll listen to a portion of my discussion with Mint Press News publisher Menar Adli about Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's repression of his country's unions and opposition activists and his privatization of its economy. We'll also hear my interview with Israel-based journalist David Sheen about theocratic extremists moving into key security positions in Israel's next government. And then we'll hear my and Anya Parampil's speeches calling for Julian Assange's freedom at rallies in support of the WikiLeaks founder this December 10th outside British consular buildings in New York City and Washington, D.C. Visit us at thegrayzone.com and support us at patreon.com slash grayzone. Welcome to our Mintcast live stream. This is an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. I am your host, Manar Adli. So today we're going to be talking about how under the cover of the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine, Ukraine is undergoing economic shock therapy, including a massive privatization drive and attacks on worker power. So right now, the rich are taking advantage of this crisis to buy state resources and land at very low prices while undermining Ukrainian labor rights. This is all part of a process that the most powerful people in the world have done repeatedly to countries and communities in crisis, as highlighted in Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine. Now, President Zelensky has recently passed bills targeting workers' rights and their ability to form unions. Yet, whenever Zelensky is presented within the media, he's always depicted as a war hero, especially by the Western left. So who is the real Zelensky and why is he being idolized by the Western media? So today we are joined by Max Blumenthal. He's the editor of The Gray Zone, who has done a lot of reporting on Zelensky, on the Zelensky that the media doesn't want you to know about. Max, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Minar. So it's very good to see you. Um, as we are speaking today, Max, it has recently been announced that Zelensky has been voted Time Magazine's Person of the Year. What is your reaction to this? Well, I, I had to laugh. And uh, he has an interview with Dave Letterman coming up in a subway station in Kiev, which you have to now <clears throat> refer to as Kiev because you have to use the Ukrainian pronunciation of everything which even mo many Ukrainians or maybe even most Ukrainians weren't all using until the Russian language was essentially officially marginalized. But Dave Letterman's in the, uh, it, this was filmed in October. He's in the subway station and J Dave Letterman, he makes himself look like a biblical prophet. Now he's like his, his true self. He doesn't have to be uh, corporate anymore, except he's doing the most corporate thing possible, which is to, interview Zelensky and make Zelensky look like this hardened war hero who's so courageous. And Letterman actually claims that he has to be in the subway station because Russian bombing is so intense. When uh, daily life in Kiev continues pretty normally, uh, except with a lot of electricity blackouts. But the point is the Western, the whole Western media still continues to treat Zelensky 
as this heroic Nelson Mandela type figure and ignores what he recently he did this week, which was to outlaw the Russian branch of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. They're rounding up priests as we speak in Kherson, along with uh, members of the Jewish ultra-Orthodox sect, Chabad, who stayed behind in Kherson to tend to their people and their parishioners uh, when it was Russian territory before the Russian retreat. And so they're all being punished now and accused of Russian collaboration. Who knows what's going to happen to them? This is this is the way Zelensky has been running the country, especially since the war took uh, broke out. And we've reported, um, you can look at my reporting at the Gray Zone along with Esha Krishnaswamy on the Pinochet-style regime of disappearances, assassinations, torture, uh, arrests of all of Zelensky's opposition, including his most popular and prominent opponent, the leader of the, uh, the Ukrainian Patriots Party, um, Viktor Medvedchuk, who was kidnapped and tortured by the Ukrainian SBU security services this year after his party was outlawed. I mean, this is a guy that you can, you can find appearances in 2019 of Zelensky having these buddy-buddy photo ops with it was like, you know, it looked like Obama and McCain from 2008. The next thing you know, he disappears this guy and throws him in a, a dungeon after outlawing his party and 13 other political and 12 other political parties outlawing all opposition media. So that's the kind of that's the political side. And, you know, many mayors have been assassinated who have attempted to negotiate civilian corridors with the full express support of Zelensky's interior ministry. We know about the kill list, you know, Marot Varets which, you know, even prominent American figures, Roger Waters, Scott Ritter, former UN weapons inspector, are, are named and targeted there. Children are on this list. Hundreds of journalists have been placed on the list. This is run by the Ukrainian Interior Ministry. This is the kind of authoritarian hardline regime that Zelensky is presiding over. But then you have the economic side, um, which goes hand in hand with this Pinochet-style regime. It's very similar to Pinochet, except without the, you know, the military uniforms and the goose stepping. You have a, com a former comedian who uh, now suddenly claims that he has this rich Jewish heritage to win over Western liberals. And he, right. he uh, recently, actually, this was in, in um, what month was this? Yeah, it was in September. So right after Zelensky signed the law that you mentioned in August, where he outlawed, essentially outlawed unions, 70% of the Ukrainian workforce is covered by this law because it targets SMEs or small to medium-sized enterprises, which have uh, less than 250 employees. You're now not allowed to form a union. A few weeks after signing that law, Zelensky rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange by yeah. video. It's just a ridiculous image of him seated in his presidential chair uh, by video with all of these corporate chieftains and Ukrainian representatives cheering at the New York Stock Exchange. Alex Rubenstein covered this for us. And I think this is one of our best and really, really most concise articles about what this war represents. The headline is Zelensky rings New York Stock Exchange bell as euro dips below dollar. This was also at the same time that 
the destruction of the EU economy had begun in earnest. And I can tell you, I was just in the EU. I was in Portugal where we were disinvited from this major tech conference under orders from Zelensky's wife, Olena Zelenska, me and Aaron Mate. And then, you know, I went to Rome for a little while and the EU has, has never been weaker. My dollar has never gone further and it was not so easy to find a hot shower. But at this point, Zelensky had hired, or at least his government had hired WPP, which is one of the top PR firms in the world, in order to sell multinational corporations on Advantage Ukraine. If you look at him ringing the bell in the NYSE at the stock exchange, he, uh, there are flags, Ukrainian flags on each side of him, and they both are emblazoned with the logo of Advantage Ukraine. Advantage Ukraine offers the best investment opportunity since World War II, according to Zelensky, to invest in Ukraine's economy. And which companies are they uh, offering as investment targets? SMEs, small to medium-sized enterprises, the same companies that are being officially de-unionized, where unionization is officially blocked. And as I mentioned before, opposition figures are being jailed. These also include labor rights activists, communists, communist party activists like the Kantorovich brothers, who have been in jail and are now under house arrest simply for organizing for labor rights. And the, the, uh, Zelensky is offering this investment menu under Advantage Ukraine. The investment, the investment menu is every public asset. He's offering the financial rape of the Ukrainian public holdings of uh, just straight up asset stripping. Basically, the, the same project that took place in Russia in the 1990s will take place in post-war or contemporary Ukraine. And this is actually a project that has been continuous since the... 2014 Maidan coup, which was triggered by the uh, government of Viktor Yanukovych, who's considered, they, they always call him a pro-Russian, but basically what he did was he wanted to arrange a, a deal to provide for gas and imports and exports to Ukraine's traditional largest economic partner, which is Russia, because they're right next door. And what right. the EU was offering him was an association agreement that would have resulted in austerity and would have prevented them from trading with getting cheap gas in the winter from Russia, which is just right there, or cheap grain from one of the world's largest grain providers, or exporting their grain right next door. Um, and when he said, no, this is impossible, and the, the privatization, as, as, as corrupt as this government currently is, this is too much privatization, and I'm not going to sell out our workers to this degree. This is all very well documented. And that's when the coup began. So since 2014, the Ukrainian government under Petro Poroshenko, who wasn't even, um, I mean, he, he's essentially the leader of a military junta. Under Poroshenko, the government ended their restriction on GMOs. And this was done under intense lobbying from Monsanto and Dow. And then they began selling off their farmland to these company, these multinational corporations. The asset stripping began right away after 2014. 
I mean, I can go into even more detail about what was taking place before um, under Yushchenko, for example, who came in under the first Western color back color revolution, the Orange Revolution, backed by a coalition of CIA-tied oligarchs and you know USAID and so on. I mean, this this guy's wife was actually a former staff member at the Heritage Foundation in Washington. Oh, that's one of the most hawkish think tanks in this country. It's hawkish, but it's 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 essentially the outsourced brain of the Republican Party, and right. they just. It's just full-scale deregulation and privatization is what they plan for Congress every day. So they they managed to slip in a Heritage Foundation cadre in Kiev after mm. the Orange Revolution in 2004. And those same laws that they write for the United States, deunionization and privatization, they mm. just cut and paste it for Ukraine. So this is a longstanding project, and it's being carried out now um, under cover of war, along with all this political repression, and Western liberals are happy to forgive it all because, you know, our brain, their brains have been were completely hacked by RussiaGate, and everything is forgiven that Zelensky and Ukraine does just to stick it to Putin. And that's exactly what it's all about. Is in the end of the day, this is just a war against Russia. But um, that was there, there's a lot to unpack with what you are what you've been talking about. But really quick, I just want to play a video of Bono playing in the metro station <laughs> in Kyiv because, you know, the amount of celebrities that have kind of jumped on this bandwagon to promote this war is also quite ridiculous. And it's, it's the reason why people on the left have basically fallen for much of this propaganda. I'm just going to play this video really quick. And why you have a lot of young people promoting this anti-Russia sentiment. Where is it? Here we go. <laughs> so somehow, like you said, I mean, there's all of these Russian bombs that are being dropped. Um, so they have to go into the subway and yet they have the most sophisticated lighting and camera yep. personnel and like everything set up to be like a really great performance. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and you, you can imagine um, people from New York or Hollywood actually consulting on these, these phony displays of hoopla. Like it, it's the exact same lighting that you see for the, mock late night TV set when Dave Letterman descends into the subway, the, the exact same lighting. I'm sure it's the same subway station and probably some PR firm from Madison Ave came in to consult on it. And you look at who they're bringing in. I mean, they're the biggest tools, Bono, he's Mr. Well, Davos. Well, yeah, and I, like need, I need to go in a shelter for a cringe shelter after watching that. And I really feel sorry for Benny King, the brother, Benny King. I mean, how many, uh, cheesy white guys have ripped off that song and now they're doing it uh, with with soldiers of an army that officially integrates neo-Nazis. I mean, it's it's disgusting. It's a disgusting rape of the soul tradition of the U.S. Well, and we've and both Mitt Press, yourself um, and many other independent journalists have covered how this kind of same um, integration and, and working with PR groups and, you know, groups like the White Helmets, you know, how, yeah. how do they work with PR groups to formulate really sophisticated videos to promote within Western media? 
it's not unlikely. It's not unheard of. I mean, these things take place. Like they've happened in the past before. So it's not some sort of conspiracy that it could happen again um, in this war. And this is the war that the media is obsessed with right now. Can you imagine when we're talking about Zelensky here, who's being presented as a war hero? And if you look at that Time magazine picture, I mean, his eyes are, they've, they turn them into blue, even though he's, his eyes are actually brown. They've really idolized him in a way that is attractive to the Western audience. Can you imagine if, you know, leaders of resistance movements <laughs> fighting U.S. imperialism were presented in the same way within Western media? They're not. They're presented as terrorists, you know, and, and so it, there's a clear agenda here in the way that um, Zelensky is uh, presented as a as a war hero as a war hero um and so i want to talk about the weapons that are going into ukraine um i've interviewed people before on this podcast about you know where are the weapons going well it turns out that only about 30 percent of the arms are actually reaching the ukrainian military um you tweeted max i'm gonna pull up your tweet here um and i think we're gonna watch this video right now my guy who's supposed to be helping me with my live streams power went out, so I'm going a little bit slower um, in presenting. So just give me one second. So this, so you tweeted this out. This is a CBS um, news report. Um, so CBS was forced to apologize under Pentagon pressure for this report, showing that most military aid to Ukraine was unaccounted for and likely flowing into the hands of criminal mafias. Too much transparency, too soon, apparently. Do you want to talk about this before I play it, or should I play it and then you talk about it? Um, well, just to follow up on what you mentioned before, yeah. if you, every war or color revolution now plays out on Instagram and right. if, you're, if you're not on Instagram and you're not following it, you won't understand how these wars or regime change projects are being marketed. They're all marketed through influencers. And I think one of the most important things, an investigative journalist who's anti-imperialist or concerned about these kind of events can do is to look at how these influencers are being recruited. And that's why you're seeing among young people so much uh, suppression of their traditional anti-war tendencies um, and, and, and support for these kind of operations. And, you know, you have experts doing the, 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 the data mining and the psychometric research to understand what soft spots to hit in the minds of millennials and Zoomers. And then they just pound it again and again. We saw Mia Khalifa, the former Lebanese-American porn star recruited to promote, she was one of the first people to promote the Patria y Vida or, or no, it was a, like DS Canal is a, is a bastard hashtag when these tiny protests broke out in Cuba, which were our rare in that country. And it triggered a massive explosion of hashtag, uh, you know, viral hashtags. And, you know, the color revolution in Cuba played out more on Instagram than it did in the streets of Havana or anywhere else. And a lot of what you see in Cuba is because they have an energy crisis. People are just going out in the streets because they don't, their fans aren't working and you just got to be out in the street and people get um, angry and hungry. But, uh, you know, this core group that was leading these protests in Cuba were also in their own right Instagram influencers who were a pro the product of the open internet 
arriving in Cuba starting in 2015, which was a condition of the Obama normalization deal. So it was inevitable that a figure like Zelensky would rise as the global influencer of the main proxy war that the West is waging. I'm sure we'd, we'd see one. A Taiwanese figure would have to be branded. And the, the, back to the Time Magazine cover, Minar, since you mentioned it, yeah. you know, they could have never, they, they did the same thing with the White Helmets who were essentially a public relations operation that was create, sp spun out of a PR firm called Purpose based in New York and London. I remember going to the White Helmets meeting at the Atlantic Council when they were introduced wow. to DC and uh, in in seated in the front row were a bunch of PR agents I recognized from Purpose along with David Petraeus and every other spook who was working on Syria. And the problem with the white helmets, though, and you, you just look at the take the time cover and juxtapose it with the white helmets cover. The problem, the problem is the white helmets are brown people who uh, happen to also consist of Al Qaeda members who had long beards. They were not very marketable to the Western public. So when we saw the white helmets, we were mainly looking at rubble or children being pulled out of the rubble. And they had to obscure the actual figure of the White Helmets because these are not sympathetic figures. I mean, for one, because um, part of the Western public is just simply has racist attitudes towards Arabs and Muslims, but also because in fact, many of its members were, and if you looked at their Facebook pages, were posting images of Osama bin Laden or the Al-Qaeda Jabhat al-Nusra flag or the ISIS flag. With Ukraine, you got white people, white Christian people, and Zelensky uh, has Jewish heritage, which is perfect to market to like um, coastal liberals who might be irritated or upset by the Azov Battalion and them sig heiling and bearing Wolf's Angle style Nazi insignia. So he's he's this perfect figure. And it's why so many Americans were working on his campaign in 2019 and working on branding him and getting him in there. Look at his predecessor, Petro Poroshenko. He's an alcoholic uh, guy with a big chest who has his, you know, kind of scowl. Doesn't he's a he's a hardline nationalist? Doesn't have any much personality at all. He's not mar as marketable. And then they show the people of Ukraine behind Zelensky because they're the white people. They're just like us, and they're being bombed by. Russia. So we finally have the perfect worthy victims for the West. And it's not just liberals. Yeah. I well, mean, you go, to, you go to Republican Orange County and you'll see yeah. Ukrainian flags all over the place. I was just about to say that. I mean, I go to the grocery store and everyone's bumper sticker is a Ukrainian flag. And all I can think about is like, where are all the Yemeni flags? Where are all the Palestinian flags? You know, Yemen is facing right. the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Over 23 million people are starving. Um, in Palestine, they're living on, you know, Palestinians are living under Israeli occupation and apartheid. And yet you don't see anybody changing their flag, you know, profile pictures with, with, with that flag. So it really um, goes to show just how much uh, or how well that propaganda campaign um, works. So and let what's me, taking place in the West Bank now is completely ignored in Western media. I mean, how many just, deaths have we seen, killings yeah. of young men have we seen in the past three weeks, including killings on camera? You'll never see it in right. Western media, like executions on camera. 
Yeah, I mean, the death of Shirin Abu Akhle, I mean, if that happened in Ukraine, if a Ukrainian journalist was, was murdered the way that Shirin Abu Akhle, the Palestinian journalist, was murdered um, on live TV, um, that would have been treated a lot differently um, than, 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 than her death it's was treated. Shocking. I mean, she was a Christian. She was, uh, according to Ned Price, State Department spokesman, known to our post, meaning she would actually, you know, check in and got, she got to know the uh, U.S. consulate personnel there in the West Bank. Um, yeah. She was keeping them informed on the situation. She was working for Al Jazeera, which has a very good relationship with the U.S. government and is considered a, basically a mainstream outlet. And she yeah. was the premier reporter in, in the Palestine. Across Palestine, she was known to everyone. And I grew up watching her. Palestinians yeah. grew up watching her. She was like their icon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just I think of any iconic uh, U.S. journalists. I can't compare them because they're all such sellouts. But I mean, you know, <laughs> Diane Sawyer or something. But it, 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 and the, how did the U.S. treat her? They completely threw her under the bus, just completely threw her under the bus. So, yes, it's it's all about geopolitics, imperialism and, yes, racism. You're listening to The Gray Zone. Visit us at thegrayzone.com and support us at patreon.com slash grayzone. Welcome to The Gray Zone. It's Max Blumenthal. According to the terms of a new coalition deal that will bring Benjamin Netanyahu back into the Israeli prime minister's office, Open Jewish supremacists and acolytes of fascist Rabbi Meir Kahana will be part of the new Israeli government. They include Bezalel Smotrich of the Religious Zionism Party, figure who supports Israeli hospitals and doctors denying care to non-Jews and favors religious segregation between Jews and Arabs. Smotrich will take over the civil administration of the occupied Palestinian territories, making him de facto prime minister of the West Bank. Then there's Idemar Ben-Gvir of the Otzma Yehudit, or Jewish Strength Party, a religious nationalist legal activist who has been convicted of crimes against Palestinians, has led race riots against Palestinian civilians, and who will become the national security minister in Netanyahu's incoming government. So to talk about the implications of these figures' inclusion in cabinet-level security positions, we're going to talk to David Sheen, who's based in Haifa, Israel, and has spent years researching the ideology and activities of the Kahanist movement in Israel and abroad. So, David, uh, welcome to the Gray Zone. Great to see you. Thanks for having me, Max. Good to be here. I hope that intro was accurate um, about these figures. And I'm correct that Itamar Ben-Gavir has been convicted of terrorism-related crimes. Mm -hmm. He's been convicted of incitement to terrorism. And he has a decades-long history. You know, he's been charged dozens of times, convicted sometimes. But all along, he's been the one of the younger leaders of this movement, the Kahana movement, that is, for all intents and purposes, the vanguard of 
Israeli politics, the furthest right movement. And more to the point, they're a kind of a combination of the nationalism and the religious theocrats on one hand. On the other hand, and the mishmash of the two turns them into a messianist movement. What I mean by that is a group that, like the religious, they want Israel to be ethnically cleansed of all non-Jews, not just an apartheid state from the river to sea, but an ethnically cleansed one. But unlike the religious, they're not waiting for God to do that. They're not passively just praying and studying Torah and waiting for that to come into some future messianic era. They, like the secular nationalists, believe that it's for them to change the facts on the ground and make that vision a reality. So since Mayor Kahana, the kind of the founding father of Israeli fascism, you know, inspired by Israel's victory, conquering in 1967, Six Day War, conquering so much territory, West Bank, Gaza, Sinai, Golan Heights, East Jerusalem, tripling plus its territory, for Kahana and many others, they felt that this was now the messianic era. Israel is, it can't be conquered, you know, it is now, uh, doesn't have to take into account any other factors. And so this is when they roll out their, their messianic vision. And Kahana first starts out in America with his vision of Jewish exceptionalism and has a whole career of Jewish terrorism there. But a few years later, he moves to Israel, starts a political party, and really changes Israeli politics forever by breaking a taboo on openly inciting ethnic cleansing, something, of course, many Israeli leaders had spoken about, uh, written about, and practiced in some cases, in the Nakba certainly, and in some cases afterwards. But here, he have a politician who openly incited that and asked people to vote for him on the basis of he will practice ethnic cleansing, he will ethnically cleanse the country's non-Jews. My answer, to transfer the Arabs out of this country. By force? Hopefully, through compensation and their willingness to leave. If compensation doesn't work and they're then, not willing? Through force. The same kind of force that the Poles and the Czechs used against the ethnic Germans in 1945, when, ha when after having suffered at the hands of a fifth column, which brought in Hitler, they decided in their own way never again. Can you believe that would be the final solution to the Palestinian problem? I'm not talking about final solutions. I'm talking about a problem that, ha that has to be solved. If they're in this country, they will vote the Jews out of a state. If they're outside of the country, they will hate us from the outside. And I'd rather have a distant hating neighbor than a close one. Okay, so this is Meyer Kahana, the mm. late Meyer Kahana, who is the inspiration for mm -hmm. Bezalel Smotrich of the Religious Zionism Party and Idemar Ben-Gvir of the Jewish Strength Party, who will mm -hmm. both serve important security positions mm -hmm. in this incoming coalition government. So before we get deeper into their ideology and the ideology mm -hmm. of Kahanism, what do you think it means for this government that they are in charge of security issues in the West Bank, especially at a time of uh, heightened conflict. I mean, dozens and dozens of Palestinian men are being killed in the West Bank. There is a lot of resistance against the occupation forces there. And the Israeli army chief of staff, Gadi Eisenkot, has said that their appointment could actually lead the Israeli army to break apart. So from your point of view, what are the implications of them 
um, achieving these new security-related powers. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. It seems that what Netanyahu is doing at the behest of his coalition partners, of course, he's indebted to them because he's trying to stay out of jail. He's up on corruption charges, and because he needs them very badly to change Israeli law and to get him for, to end his trial so that he won't have to spend his final years in jail, he has to accept every condition that they put for him. And that condition has included, as uh, the former chief of staff Eisenkot alluded, it includes the breakup of the Israeli government. It's traditional breakup of ministries is now being parsed into different portions and some of those portions very specific portions are going to be handled by as you pointed out Bitsala Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir of the, the Messianic camp of, of these further far-right parties and they have specifically chosen those those offices because it would give them the ability well in the case of Smotrich to essentially de facto, as you said, annex the West Bank, or at least Area C of the West Bank, because it would give him the power to do make all the decisions there, but you know, with maintaining the legal fiction that this is annexing, but without actually using the word annexing. But in all other ways, it would be annexing. And in terms of Itamar Bengvir wanting securely related, well, think about it a year and a half ago, uh, Israel had uh, what we would call anti-Palestinian pogroms or race riots in the so-called mixed cities, or in traditionally Palestinian, historic Palestinian cities that were depleted of their most of their original inhabitants, but still a Palestinian minority hung on, and still is today a, Palest a rare Palestinian minority city in 48 Israel. And in those territories, in those towns rather, in May 19, in 2021, Itamar Ben-Gvir's thugs came into those towns and, you know, attacked Palestinians whenever they could find them. And so Israel's police chief called that Itamar, accused Itamar Ben-Gvir of inciting what he called the Jewish Intifada. That's a year and a half ago. Today, Itamar Ben-Gvir is now being appointed to national security minister so he's going to be the boss of that israeli police commissioner who blamed him for those race riots and That's amazing. Are, yeah and, 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 and let me just to illustrate the you know who ben ben gavir is for those who don't yeah. know um here's video of him i think this is in 2015 leading a race riot in occupied hebron in the old city in Ben Gavir is the man in white. You can actually see Ben Gavir to the left of the screen pulling down the rack of clothes and vandalizing the shop of a Palestinian shopkeeper in Hebron. So that was actually um, a shop that I visited in 2018. I was just passing by. The shopkeeper is in the H2 area of Hebron, which is under Israeli military occupation because Ben Gavir lives there along with other fascistic settlers. There's a memorial to Baruch Goldstein who um, massacred 29 Palestinian worshipers at the Ibrahimi Mosque nearby. 
uh, in, in order to destroy the Oslo Accords. Ben Gavir actually dressed up as Baruch Goldstein as a young man to kind of honor him. And here he is leading a riot. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I hung out with that shopkeeper. He was a really nice, warm, hospitable person. And they're telling him to go back to Syria, assaulting him. And this, and, and this rioter is now a national security minister mm -hmm. in the Israeli government. And you're saying he has also led riots inside uh, what's considered Israel proper, mm -hmm. and he'll have police powers. Exactly. So even beforehand, police were generally known, especially the border police that Itamar Ben-Gvir is now specially requested control over. So they're already generally known as strong bastions of Kahanism, that the people who serve in those units are brawlers and tend to the far right politically. But now it's just openly police understand that this is the spirit of the commander. So we can imagine that they're going to be even more brutal on what few people will still protest in the streets. But what we'll see more of, of course, is people who share the Kahanist ideology understanding that there won't be police any intervention and that they can feel free to take out their anger on Palestinian people or other non-Jews that they encounter. That's what we can right. expect in the years to come. You mentioned that Ben Gvir, for example, uh, you know, dressed up as the Israel's the biggest mass murder in Israeli history. Baruch Goldstein, he also, the first date with his wife was there. He is recently, in a few years ago, called for streets in Israel to be named after him. It's the whole ideology of the Kahana movement. It's, they believe what makes them different from the rest of the, you know, Israeli terrorists is that they don't believe like, oh, well, what to do? We're the lords of the land. And sometimes, you know, these Palestinians are going to rise up, so we need to crush it. No, no, no. The Kahanists actually consecrate killing Palestinians and people that they say are their enemies, which is pretty much right. anyone that defies their rules. So they actually hold these people up to be heroes. He, ben Gvir had a photo of Goldstein, the murderer, the mass murderer, on his living room wall for decades. I mean, they literally yeah. hold these people up as heroes. And in some cases are. Ben Gvir actually, as we mentioned in a podcast some years ago that we did, uh, Ben Gvir is actually the protege of a Kahanist killer of Bronx-born Andy Green, moved to Israel, became the Kahanist terrorist turned lawyer, Baruch Ben Yosef, when Ben Gvir uh, graduated from street rabble-rouser to studying to law, to be able to practice law and defend Israel's, you know, Kahanist killers, uh, then he learned from the best, the Kahanist killer turned lawyer, Baruch Ben Yosef, Andy Green, and did a, his articling with Ben Yosef. And thanks to that, now Ben Gvir has his law degree and is now managed to parlay that into a political career and as you said, making him essentially police minister in charge of Israel's police forces. You're listening to The Gray Zone. Visit us at thegrayzone.com and support us at patreon.com slash grayzone. Would you please welcome Max Blumenthal from the Gray Zone? Thank you. Thank you, Randy. 
Yeah, thank you, Randy. Can't thank you enough. You're a soldier. I'll speak louder. I'll, I'll speak louder. I was hearing some babbling around the out, outskirts. I don't know. Was, was President Biden here? Can I, you, everyone's trying to take my coffee. Yeah. I'm glad everyone stayed after Roger Waters and Ben Cohen for the, the little people. Just a, a humble editor of a website that was just declared by Wik Wikipedia to be far left and far right at the same time. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second, because it does relate. Um, yeah, I came in last night, had dinner with an old friend, a not political friend, and he brought his apolitical girlfriend who brought her apolitical corporate friends. Very nice people, I mean, great people. And after two hours of talking about themselves, they, they asked me what I was doing in New York. And I said, I'm speaking at a rally for Julian Assange. And they just drew a blank. They said, who the hell is Julian? Julian, Julian Lennon, Julian who? Julius Irving. They didn't know who Julian Assange was. And these are people that are highly educated. And they have been betrayed. No, it's, it's not their fault. And when I told them who Julian Assange was, and that he is being literally tortured and has been in solitary confinement for a thousand days and more for exposing official corruption and the crimes of our national security state. They were horrified and you could actually see tears in their eyes when they learned that he was also a father and a husband who has been deprived of holding his children simply because he told the truth about our national security state. We have an entire population to reach here. Most people do not know who Julian Assange is and that's why this work is so important. Now I'll tell you about another event I went to earlier this year in Los Angeles. Some of you might not like it from the lockdown left, but it was at a rally to defeat the mandates. Yeah. Those of you who don't like it, it's irrelevant. We all need to get along. We need to get over these divisions from the, from the pandemic. And I'm sorry you got mad at me, but I'm not mad at you. I'm sorry you fell for the PSYOP, but I was just there. I was just there to explain how I thought that the lockdowns and the health passports were creating a digital dystopia. And when I said that Julian Assange had warned about this for years, before I even called for his freedom, this right-leaning crowd got on its feet and cheered immediately for the freedom of Julian Assange. And it was an amazing moment. Now why? 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 Because they watch stuff like Tucker Carlson, and Tucker Carlson has had Roger Waters on repeatedly to advocate for Julian Assange. It's crazy, we're living in an upside down world right now where the Fox News network that was clamoring for the war in Iraq is now presenting space for people to advocate for the freedom of Julian Assange. And so there's an opportunity there. Randy really wants my coffee. <laughs> but who are the people that we have the hardest time trying to talk to about this? It's the progressives, the liberals, the MSNBC watchers, the people who read legacy media. We call them shit libs now, but these are educated people who read the New York Times and the Washington Post, and they don't realize the Washington Post is owned by one of the world's richest men who is a contractor for the CIA, who hosts the CIA's cloud at his Amazon. They don't realize that, and they are hostile to Julian Assange. So, the people who support the Patriot Act. So that, the mainstream media has become an enemy of the journalist, the most courageous publisher and journalist of our time. And I always tell this story, I always tell this story about 
the piece that I published that Randy mentioned at the Gray Zone about how the CIA was running an operation to surveil Julian Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy. They had taken over the security through UC Global, and so everyone who came in through the front door to visit Julian, they thought they were speaking to an Ecuadorian you know, security guard. It was, in fact, a CIA asset who would take their devices, open their devices, invade their devices, and then send it back to Langley. So who were some of those people? Some of those people were reporters for these same publications that have demonized Julian Assange, painting him as a Russian spy and so on. One of them was Ellen Nakashima, the chief national security correspondent for the Washington Post. I published photos of her devices that were opened by CIA assets at UC Global. Just to, re just to restate that, the chief national security correspondent for the Washington Post had her devices infiltrated by the CIA. Now, can you imagine if the Russian FSB did that, what would have happened? There would have been headlines on every mainstream publication. I went to the Washington Post. I went to Ellen Nakashima. I said, do you have any comment on this? Do you have anything to say about this? No. Silence. Crickets. Not a goddamn thing because they can't bite the hand that feeds them. They are cowards. No, they're, they're, they're worse than cowards. They are the voice of the national security state that Julian Assange exposed. They are the stenographers for our secret government, and they betrayed Julian Assange. So a letter recently came out. Thank you to the New York Times publisher, Arthur Sulzberger, for participating in this letter. Several mainstream legacy publications called for the US to drop the Espionage Act charges against Julian Assange. Finally, finally, years later, they finally did this. The New York Times was the only American publication to sign that letter. No LA Times, no Chicago Tribune, no Washington Post, no Wall Street Journal, no Associated Press, no Reuters, because they are the stenographers for the national security state. They are worse than cowards. They are part of the crimes that Julian Assange exposed. Julian Assange asked, what is the average death count for every Western journalist? And that is a question we need to continue to ask today. Those people know that they will never be on the hook. They will never face punishment, as Julian Assange did, because they will never do what he did. But those of us who do, and we do this at the gray zone, if you read anything Kit Clarenberg published recently about the British national security state, British intelligence, we continue to do this. There is a target on our back because of what is happening to Julian Assange. And so we are fighting not only for the right of Julian Assange to hold his children and be with his wife. We're fighting for the right to expose the secret government, the national security state, the Central Intelligence Agency, which has a $90 billion or more black budget, which has infested Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms with its former agents. And we see Garland Nixon here is banned from Twitter. I thought, I thought Elon Musk was exposing censorship. National Security State Contractor Elon Musk, I thought he was exposing censorship. He said only the right is censored. Well, why are anti-imperialists like Garland Nixon censored? Why are they suspended? Why? Why isn't he leaking the files about that? Why isn't he leaking the files about Russiagate? Why isn't he leaking the files about everyone who criticized the Ukraine proxy war being suspended? Why has Elon Musk not restored the Twitter account of Julian Assange? Can we at least free yeah. Julian Assange's Twitter account? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to close by reading an email 
from Julian Assange. Hi all, I'm in Iceland. You should be too, or at least reporting about it. I've been in Iceland the past few weeks advising parliamentarians here on a cross-party proposal to turn Iceland into an international journalism haven, a jurisdiction designed to attract organizations into publishing online from Iceland by adopting the strongest press and source protection laws from around the world. In my role as WikiLeaks editor, I've been involved in fighting off many legal attacks. To do that and keep our sources safe, we have had to spread assets, encrypt everything, and move telecommunications and people around the world to activate protective laws and national jurisdictions. It goes on, but he says, that's why I'm excited about what is happening in Iceland, which has started to see the world in a new way after its mini-revolution a year ago. That was February 2010, and today Julian Assange has been captured. And he was captured because he was, and, and he's being tortured because he was leading a revolution in journalism. And it's, that's why. Not because he violated some Espionage Act. So it's our job today to continue that revolution, to continue the revolution that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks started, and to see Julian Assange standing here with us and his family, to see that revolution through. Thank you. Assange, go France. I guess we have to say that since we're here to tell the British that they are complicit in a crime, the persecution of Julian Assange, and an attack on the free press. You know, something when we, as the United States, fought for our independence from the British, one thing we fought for was the First Amendment and the free press, a concept they don't even really have in the UK. And so it is our responsibility, I think, as US citizens to show that we actually believe in this here in the United States. We believe in a free press and we are gonna fight to say the, United, the, UK, the UK should not extradite Julian Assange. He has no chance at facing a fair trial in the United States. And the president, precedent that the UK has already set by essentially kidnapping him uh, is, is horrible for people like me who work, do journalism to expose the crimes of the transatlantic evil empire. And our greatest partner in that transatlantic evil empire is the United Kingdom. Yeah, boom! That's right. That's right. And you know, one of the best things that I've experienced in my life lately is getting to raise my daughter and I think I just, my heart breaks for Julian Assange, who's been robbed of that right to spend time with his children. And his children have been robbed of their father. And just on that personal level, I hope that one day we, we get to see Julian reunited with his children. We've all heard the horrible stories of what his boys have had to go through to meet him in prison. Uh, very uh, uh, invasive searching of young young children who are just trying to visit their father who's been taken away from them. Um, and that's all being done by the UK government, you guys. Not much to be proud of there. I mean, we're standing here to tell you that you should be ashamed. Shame! Shame! Shame on you! Shame! Shame on the UK! Free Julian Assange! Free Julian Assange! 
The last thing I'll say is that uh, tomorrow I'll be going to Miami to cover a, a case, a trial of someone else who was kidnapped by the United States. That's Alex Saab, the Venezuelan diplomat who was fighting against the same transatlantic evil empire, defending Venezuela against the sanctions not only levied by the United States, but by the UK government. Yes. And this government has also stolen billions of dollars worth of Venezuelan gold. They used the coup, the cover of Juan Guaido, to basically just make sure that gold that uh, Venezuela was trying to repatriate and bring back to its country is forever in the coffers of the Central Bank of England. So there's just so much criminality coming out of the government that these people in this building work for. And so we're going to keep showing up and tell you, you can't watch your World Cup game in peace. Shame on you. Shame on you. We will not stop until Julian Assange is free. And I, I, you know, the rest of the world, it feels like sometimes has moved on or forgotten. And so I'm so happy to see that there are people that haven't forgotten and that will always show up and say, Free Julian Assange! Free Julian Assange! Free Julian Assange! Go France! Not that I would usually want to for France, really, but hey, this, on this day when we're all here for Assange, go France. This was another episode of The Gray Zone. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal, along with my colleagues Aaron Maté and Anya Parampil, inviting you to join us again next week on Pacifica Radio for more independent investigative journalism and uncensored conversations exposing the politics of empire. Visit us online and learn how you can support our work at thegrayzone.com. This show was produced by Chris Weaver.